and time to cross to the United States. Celeste Katz-Marston is our guest in the beautiful city of Boston, Massachusetts. Celeste, good morning. Welcome back to the program. Good morning. Look, I would say the beautiful city of Boston, which is a lovely, lovely city. Although, and we'll get to this, well, well, I think we should get to this first. It's a big local story. Massachusetts, though, is apparently, as beautiful as Massachusetts is, the 31st best state, according to a new survey. I mean, yeah, when you've got 50 states, you're going to rank them all 1 to 50. But how did Massachusetts only finish number 31? Yeah, this was a poll put out by a company called YouGov. And basically what they asked people to do was look at a bunch of matchups of states. You know, they chose two states at a time and they said, which one do you think is better? So Massachusetts or California, Nebraska or Florida. And the winners were ranked by how many times that state came in first. And Massachusetts has the very dubious distinction of being 31st on the list. Which is like, what's the point of 31st? You may as well be in either the top 10 or the, you know, the last. Who cares who runs 31? Yeah, I think that's, uh, you get the remarkably average award for that one. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Which state ran first? Hawaii. Hmm. Now, I've been to Hawaii on many occasions and I'm not surprised, although it surely wouldn't have ranked first when it comes to traffic. The traffic in Honolulu was absolutely appalling. Uh, what did yeah. people like about Hawaii? Uh, I think, you know, it's the uh, the, the weather, the, the physical beauty of the place, the culture, uh, you know, that kind of thing. I think that people, and also people tended to vote uh, for their home state. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I think in, which is interesting because Hawaii is not like a large population state for, for obvious reasons. But um, it's it's an interesting question. Like, why were people sort of uh, not that excited about Massachusetts? In fact, it ranked lowest among all the states in New England. Unbelievable. Even Rhode Island, where I used to live, did better. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> Surely. But, yep. yeah, but, I mean, they all have their, you know, attributes, of course. Uh but Massachusetts, like it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful. It's it's kind of two states. There's Boston on the you know the sort of east coast side of it, and then you've got a lot of rural areas in uh, Massachusetts. But it's got all those universities and all that sort of stuff. There's a lot going for it. Yeah, you know, maybe it's the driving. Uh, Massachusetts people are famous for uh, not being great drivers, particularly Boston people are famous for this. Uh, it's been nicknamed Taxachusetts, uh, <laughs> which is not not necessarily, uh, you know, there's a there's a name for Massachusetts people and Ooh. it has the word hole in it. I'm not sure I'm allowed to say it on a family <laughs> Mass hole, radio. Perhaps. Is that what they yeah, say? That's, that's what they call people from the state. Yeah, I, I would like to add at this juncture that I am a New Yorker. <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, so uh, it's a little bit of attitude there. Maybe it's the accent. Maybe it's the uh, the attitude about uh, how great the Patriots are. I don't know. But for some reason, Massachusetts did not rank very high on this. I list. think that actually might be part of it. Like a lot of people don't like Tom Brady, even though he has now moved to Florida, of course, perhaps there's a residual dislike of that. Which state ran last in this poll? Oh, you know, that's a good question. I actually didn't. Maybe I was so demoralized. Uh, I think the last state was actually Alabama. And 
District of Columbia came in below Alabama, but as you know, it's technically not a state. So not, not yet, sure. but we'll get to that. <laughs> the thing about Alabama, I always thought some people used to laugh about it and say, well, the state motto is thank God for Mississippi because Alabama <laughs> would run, run second last in all the things like, you know, health care and, um, you know, all sorts of things like that because Mississippi would actually be the worst state in the union when it comes to that sort of stuff. But finally, Mississippi is able to brag that it finished ahead of Alabama. Yeah, it's a tech, I think statistically it was a tie, but again, not a <laughs> not something to write home about. <laughs> that is not that is not to uh, um, that is not to uh, not to uh, to boast about. Um, you mentioned uh, DC, District Columbia, not being a state. Was a little, you know, it's not that big, you know, it's a few square miles or whatever carved out of uh, Maryland and Virginia. Virginia ranked third, by the way, I think, on that list of the best states in the union. Uh, I remember there was a joke in All the President's Men, the movie, where they, you know, they wanted to go to the front page on DC statehood that DC would become a state. That was 50 years ago. Finally, are they now getting around to the point that where maybe the District of Columbia could become the 51st state? And this is a massive, massive thing, especially for the Democratic Party. It is within the realm of possibility, what I call it within the realm of likely, not just yet. Uh, it is moving through the House of Representatives. There is a, a democratic control of the Senate with, you know, obviously with uh, the vice president as a tiebreaker, but there are some democratic members even of the U.S. Senate who don't think that uh, D.C. should be a state right now. So this is Definitely not a sure thing. Hmm. Okay, the thing, though, is if it does become another state, presumably it gets two more senators, and they are two Democratic senators. There is no way Republicans would win uh, two, uh, you know, one, let alone two, uh, Senate seats in District of Columbia. So that's two guaranteed Senate seats for the Democrats. Why don't they want you know, DC to become a state, even though I don't think, I think it's ridiculous. It's too small to become a state. Yeah. I mean, it's basically, it, it's a city and it, it's a real city. You know, I'm sure you've, you know, Beautiful been there. City, People yeah. are familiar with it. Yeah. I mean, it's a real place. It's not some sort of, you know, random outpost where, where nothing's going on or it's mm. the seat of government. But uh, you know, I think some people just aren't sure. Maybe it is too small. Maybe the capital should sort of belong to everybody. It shouldn't be uh, the same as other states. It's a unique place with a unique function. Um, you know, and then there are other sort of, you know, maybe people are just good with having 50 states and this will open the door to other things. I mean, there's been a lot of talk for quite a while about uh, Puerto Rico becoming the yes. 51st state. Uh, so that's that's another consideration. But it would be a big change. Uh, at the same time, you can understand people who live in the District of Columbia. I think their license plate there has their slogan, which is taxation without representation. Yeah, which, you know, is funny because it harks all the way back to why, you know, the, the 13 colonies as they were then split from Britain in the first place is because they mm. felt, you know... Well, the funny thing also about that is that there are plenty of people in England that were paying taxation and got no representation either. So it was not <laughs> confined just to the colonies, but in fact people in the UK also uh, were going through the same thing. But yeah, and those people live in 
the D, in DC, and they don't have they have someone I think who uh, is a member of Congress. I don't know if they have voting rights these days, but they don't have senators. And why should they be unfairly not represented? I think you know, there's a huge argument why it should be a state. Yeah, they have. I think what's called not a representative, but something like a delegate. Yeah. Um, so there, there is some sort of presence, and uh, residents of the District of Columbia can vote for president. Mm. But uh, that's only been, I think, since like the 1960s. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Having said that, here in Australia, Canberra, our capital, is in the Australian Capital Territory, which is an area much bigger than DC. But they are woefully underrepresented when it comes to the Senate as well. They only get two senators. Every state gets 12 in Australia. And they're rapidly approaching the population of the state of Tasmania. So I'm hoping that maybe they will start to uh, get something going there. Um, How far down the track are we? I mean, there's a joke in in all the president's men where Ben Bradley, you know, he says, oh, well, when they vote or not, we'll put it on the front page. Is it ever likely they come to a vote? I think this is something that is there are certain bills that are regularly advanced and get support probably past one house. But uh, this is, I believe, the, the second consecutive year that D.C. statehood has has been uh, you know, considered in this way in the House. So uh, I don't think it's just around the corner, maybe maybe in the future. I mean, we have we have younger states in this country. We mentioned before Hawaii yes. and uh, Alaska are relatively young states. So. It could mm. happen. I wonder if they could just put a line through DC and say, right, you know, north of this, you vote in Maryland, and south of this, you vote in Virginia. I mean, why couldn't they just do that? Well, right now, Congress controls a lot of the functions. It's almost like a, a federalized state. It, they have a mayor in Washington. They have uh, metro police. They have a transportation system, all these things. But a lot of the control of uh, D.C. is federalized. And asking federal officials to give up federal control yeah. of the District of Columbia, people don't usually give away power once they have it. They got a pretty good train system, actually. The metro system—it's got lovely colours, you know, lovely colours of all the different lines. It's—it's it's a great city, Washington. I mean, it's easy to get around. Uh, it's got a great uh, metro system. There's so many things to see there. Uh, anyone, if we ever get moving again, if we ever be able to travel internationally, I always recommend going to D.C. Uh, Celeste Katz Marston is our guest in um, Boston. Now, here is your president, uh, Joe Biden keeping thousands of troops grounded and concentrated in just one country at a cost of billions each year makes little sense to me and to our leaders. We cannot continue the cycle of extending or expanding our military presence in Afghanistan, hoping to create ideal conditions for the withdrawal and expecting a different result. I'm now the fourth United States president to preside over American troop presence in Afghanistan. Two Republicans, two Democrats. I will not pass this responsibility onto a fifth. I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. That is a huge call from Joe Biden. As we know, American troops went in there after September 11, which is coming up to the 20th anniversary this year. I mean, he's really talking like Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump wanted to end America's involvement in foreign wars, useless wars. Is this a huge call by Joe Biden? 
I think it is. And I think that, you know, as the, uh, I think he's sort of seizing a moment. We are, as you say, coming up to the, I can't believe it, but the 20th uh, anniversary since 9-11, which is just shocking to me as somebody who, you know, is a New Yorker mm-hmm. who covered 9-11 on the ground. Um, but we have been in, uh, we have been in this war uh, and in this region of the world for a very long time. Uh, I think what Biden is saying is he's looking at this milestone. He's saying, have we accomplished the true objective of why we went in there, which is basically to stop this being a breeding ground for terrorist attacks against the United States. And he believes that we have, that, you know, certainly not, the world is not free of terrorism, but have we accomplished that goal of of decimating and, and pushing out uh, Al-Qaeda and not having this be a breeding ground for uh, for terror against the U.S., uh, he thinks that uh, that has been accomplished. And you certainly have only to look at history, um, you know, looking at uh, if you can learn anything from the Russians is that uh, uh, military engagement in Afghanistan is usually uh, not a winning proposition. So, um, you know, is this is it our job, I guess, is the question. Is it the job of of uh, the U.S. and its allies to fix or to remake or to to uh, remold Afghanistan, or was it to do something that has been done and it's time to come home? Okay, so what happens once the troops leave? We should point out there have been very few, if any, deaths there for quite a while of American troops. But we hear bombs, all sorts of terrible things that Taliban do. They have come out and said, look, uh, you can say what you like, but we don't believe in uh, democracy. That's a Western idea. That is not the way to run Afghanistan uh, a lot of people would also say, well, now well, once the, the troops leave, and uh, our Prime Minister has already said the Australian troops will be leaving as well, then, um, you know, what about all those people who died over the last 20 years? Have they died in vain? We're just giving up and going home. Well, I, you know, those are those are all, it's a painful question to have to ask, was this war for nothing? And it's it's very hard to to uh, sort of demonstrate physically, to put something before people's own eyes if the goal was to prevent something from happening. How do you justify uh, military action by saying uh, this never happened? You know, these attacks did not occur. This, uh, this organization of terrorist forces did not occur. And, and that's a very difficult. But if you look at, uh, you know, sort of the the larger proposition of what it has cost us so far and uh, how many people have been there, how many people did not come back, uh, you know, my husband is, is uh, fond of quoting a saying, I think, that is uh, that is related to that part of the world. They say uh, they have the watches, but we have the time mm. and they can wait. They can wait until the United States pulls out. Now, you can say maybe they have and maybe things will go back to the way they were. But uh, I think the U.S. again and its allies have to make that calculation of how much do we want to invest I think we can look back over 20 years, and although many people did die, many lives were saved because of the Allied presence in Afghanistan. You'd have to think of the way that women's lives perhaps were improved over those 20 years, whether that then changes again, I don't know. But that's something where we actually have to look on a positive side to say, who knows, if the Taliban had been allowed to stay in power all those years who knows what Afghanistan would look like now, but we might get a look at that and then 20 years' time we're going to look back and say, well, the Taliban are back in control as they were 20 years ago, so maybe it was all 
for nothing. I don't know. Rob has texted in. He said the world must look for non-military solutions, particularly when military solutions has failed. That's all very well. But, of course, if one side says we don't want a military solution, then the other side's going to do it as well. And that's not the case here, is it? I mean, both sides have got to agree to that. And that's that's just simply not happening. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of considerations, you know, non-military action, definitely important diplomatic uh, diplomatic solutions to these problems, economic development. You know, if people are uh, have work, are able to provide for themselves and their families, that they have education, that they have uh, civil rights, human rights, you know, these things go a very long way towards quelling unrest, you know, sort of historically. Uh, the, the other question is, of course, if those are things that they want, do they need help or do they need uh, imposition of of those yeah. ways of living and those economic models? That's that's a big question for me. Another thing, and I'm sure it was on Joe Biden's mind, is that there are people over there now who were not born when this war began, and that that tells that's a huge failure of you know, any kind of solution, whether it be military or diplomatic. But we shall see. It's going to be difficult to walk away. Now it's just counting down, isn't it? You know, the next few months until it finally happens, and then who knows whether the you know the the various factions will start warring again. Um, before we go this morning, Celeste, um, you know, it seems like no country has been able to get COVID right. Either we did it right in Australia in suppressing the pandemic, but we can't get the vaccine right. Other countries like the UK, maybe even the US, are getting the vaccine right, but they can't. They couldn't get the the pandemic right. But now the Johnson and Johnson vaccine remains on pause as the Centers for Disease Control looks at more information. It makes people wonder: Well, was this rushed through? Were they so desperate to get the vaccine that mistakes were made? Well, I think it's it's certainly true that these vaccines are all emergency authorized. They were rushed. We are dealing with a, a pandemic that so far has killed, I believe, uh, more than 560,000 people in the United States. So if you think about, uh, you know, almost all of the city of Boston full of bodies, that is the that is the death toll in the United States. So, yes, these all the vaccines were put out on a, a rush basis. Um, you know, what we're looking at, though, is I think nearly seven million doses of Johnson and Johnson vaccine uh, have been out there. And of those, there's about six cases that led to this pause, six cases of uh, people developing uh, blood clots. And look, we don't want any loss of life. Nobody wants that. It's a serious question. You don't know if there are other cases of people uh, being injured. But, you know, it's sort of a calculation. If the vast, vast majority of people who get the vaccine are okay, is it worth continuing? Or do you want to at least show the public, A, that you're taking this seriously and you're looking into it, and B, that they shouldn't be afraid of the vaccine? Because if people hear anecdotal evidence, then it leads to uh, a great an increase in what we call vaccine hesitancy, where people are afraid to get the shot, even though it is it is by all measures generally very, very safe. Let me just compare briefly. You know, one person, perhaps two people, get these blood clots and the whole thing is shut down. 20, 30 people get killed in a gun massacre and nothing happens. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's something also that uh, President Biden has been trying to to talk about about uh, reductions and you know changes to regulations on particularly assault weapons. But yeah, the United States has an unfortunate reputation for mass shootings, and uh, you know, separately uh, but relatedly, people are very uh, uh, attached to their Second Amendment rights. Those rights are enshrined in the Constitution, although they can certainly be interpreted as to uh, how they apply. Yeah. I wonder if medical rights were enshrined in the Constitution, how different things would be. Also, if uh, those people on September 11 had attacked the U.S. with, um, you know, legally bought weapons rather than aeroplanes, would there be a change to, you know, would that have changed things? Good questions. Uh, not sure I have answers for you right now. Mm, there's no answers when it comes to guns. But anyway, uh, Celeste, thank you very much. Stay well, stay safe, and we'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much, Celeste Katzmarston in the United States.